And so I was, I was thinking about when I first came in the pastoral ministry as a part of just sort of setting up this passage and some of the things Paul talks about. And back in the early days of my pastoral ministry, so we're going back, I don't know, 18, 19 years or so, I remember I'd taken Pinelands Presbyterian Church, and that's, you know, just the church down the street, and it was a, it was a really struggling church, and so I, I had all these desires and longings to do a, a good job there, kind of like, I mean, I do have those desires here at Old Cutler as well, but I went into this small dying church, and, and I, you know, just sort of trying to figure out how to do pastoral ministry, didn't really know how to do pastoral ministry. Uh, at that time, we, Karen and I had not been married for that long, and we had little kids, and life just got to this place for me where it was just overwhelming. I just, I, I, was, I, I didn't know how to do ministry. I didn't know how to really be a husband. I didn't know how to be a daddy. I mean, it was just all those things that came at me at once, and it was overwhelming to me. And I, I, I went through this time of real difficulty, and I've had those all along the way in my life. And so if you, if, if you don't think those come, they do. Those moments come in our lives, and I was in one. And so we, Karen and I were trying to figure out what to do, and we decided that what we would do is we would, we would go through a, a gospel-centered uh, Bible curriculum called Sonship. I don't know if, if many of you have heard of Sonship. It, it is an excellent curriculum. And so what we did is we would work through this, this, this curriculum during the week, and both of us had homework assignments, and it would really be, you know, how do you take a, a doctrine like justification by faith and apply it to life? Or how do you take a doctrine like being adopted by God and apply it to life? And, and then we would get a call from a mentor who was up in Philadelphia, and every week he would call us and he would check in on how we were doing, how the gospel was being applied to our lives, and so forth. There's a wonderful curriculum that I would recommend to any of you uh, if you're struggling with some of the things that I'm going to talk to you about through the sermon today. But the, one of the goals of Sonship is this, and I want to I put this out in front of you because in many ways I want you to think this as we move through this passage. And here's one of their goals, to connect what your head knows to what your heart needs. That's really good. To connect what your head knows to what your heart needs. And so, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've, I've, been, I've been a minister for a long time, but, but all of the, the theology, all the things that I know, there are times when there seems to be this, this disconnect that exists. And, and what we want is to, to connect what our head knows to what our heart needs, and what our heart ultimately needs is really to know how much we are accepted by and loved by our Heavenly Father because of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we turn the focus of our attention to chapter 4, what Paul begins to deal with here, and we've read the first 20 verses, as he begins to deal with this issue of being a child of God, being a son of God, being a daughter of God, all that that means, the significance of that, and so forth. And really what he's doing is he's staying on that same theme, which we've been talking about over and over and over again. You've got to get the gospel. You've got to get the gospel. You've got to get the gospel. That's the theme. And what the Galatians were doing and the influence of the Judaizers, these false teachers, is they were walking away from it. They were turning away from the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is that if you keep turning away from the gospel, then there are going to be some things that are true. And we've already talked about some of these. If you turn away from the gospel, you're turning away from truth, which is, that's right. If you turn away from the gospel, you're turning away from sound doctrine, and that's right. But if you turn away from the gospel, and this is what he's pushing into in today's passage, you're really turning away from the, how to experience the wonder of that relationship. You're turning away from how, how the connection goes from the head to the heart. You're turning away from that. And so Paul, as he pushes in on the gospel again in this passage and says some things that are important for us to understand, he wants to get them to, to, to the place where they really are getting what it means to be children of God, what it means to be a son and daughter of God. 
And so the way that I'm going to look at this passage, we're just going to move our way through it, and it's a long passage, so we're going to go kind of quickly through the sections of it. But I think Paul talks about, one, the benefits of sonship, and then he talks about the bondage of slavery. And that's the way we're going we're to wrestle with this. We're going to look at the benefits and the blessings of sonship, what we have, all that we have as a result of Jesus and this relationship with our Father. But then this whole notion of slavery and being in bondage again, and, and he's warning the Galatians not to go there. And so we begin with this idea of the benefits of sonship. In order to see the flow of Paul's thought, the first five verses, I want us to go back and look at verse 29 of chapter 3, and then we'll look at the first five verses. And so this was two weeks ago when I was last here, but notice again what Paul says. He says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now one of the things that he, he wants us to get there is that, that we are, and, and probably not all of us, but most of us who are here are probably Gentiles. We're not, a, we're not Jewish. We weren't a part of the covenant people of God. He, what he's saying to us is that we are, if you know Jesus, you are a child of God. That's the point that he's making, that you are an heir of the living God. And it is not by circumcision, it's not by taking on the law, it's not by any of the things we do. We have this if we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. A few weeks back as we were looking at chapter 3, one of the points that Paul makes is, and, and, and there's a lot of theology, and I'm going to use some, some words today, and I'll, I'll hopefully explain them because I am of the firm belief, guys, that one of the reasons, and I've said this to you before, that we don't get the gospel is because we don't know some of these ideas, and we have to know these ideas, all right? And so I'm going to use some of them. But one of the things that Paul does in chapter 3 earlier is he talks about how Abraham didn't have offsprings, but he has an offspring. And one of the points that he's making is that when you look, and I'm going to use my hands a little bit with you to sort of give you the, the spectrum here. So if you go back to Abraham, Abraham had a promise, a covenant commitment from God made to him. And, and that did find fulfillment in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on through Israel. It did find fulfillment there. I'm not denying that. It absolutely did. Those were the people of God, the covenant people of God. But what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 is that it wasn't offsprings. He said it was offspring. And what he's talking about is, is that the ultimate fulfillment, say this is Abraham, it jumps all the way over to here's Christ. And that the ultimate fulfillment of, of the promises, the covenant commitment to Abraham is found in Jesus and the point that he's making is that it's found in Jesus and those who are in Jesus, those who are in Christ, those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. That we are his heirs, the heirs of Abraham, the heirs of God, that we are the children of God. Okay, now that's, that's sort of a, if you were to say all right, a heading over the first five verses, it should be that. We go in, we have it in Jesus. All right, now if you look at the first five verses of chapter 4. This is it's kind of difficult to understand. It would not have been to the Galatians because what he's doing is he's arguing what most scholars think is using the laws of Roman inheritance. And I'll, I'll spell that out to you in a moment, but he's trying to get a point across. So here, here's the first, first couple of verses. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, and when he, when he uses the word child there, he's, he's not talking about it in the sense of being a child of God. He's using the word child in, in the sense of being uh, uh, he is using that in a little bit, but in the sense of mainly being immature. That's what he's saying. A child is immature. Okay. Is no different from a slave. So he's not trying to make the point that the child is in bondage. He's just trying to make the point that the child doesn't have the freedom of determination. He's no different than a slave in that regard. Why? Because it's still a child, still immature. That's what he's saying. Okay. So he goes on to say, though he is the owner of everything. So the point is, when it comes to a father having all these things, he's going to pass them on to the child. The child has them. He has the things. They belong to him. 
but he doesn't, have, he doesn't have it fully yet because he hasn't reached the point of maturity. You following me? Okay, go on to verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers. Okay. Well, the last time we were together, when we looked at chapter 3, we talked about how the law is that guardian. So he's pulling some of these ideas. So he's under guardians and managers. He's not an adult. He's not in control of things yet. Until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. All right, so he says we are heirs. He says that. That's true. We're heirs, children of God. We have it. Then he goes through this whole thing of saying, all right, there's a child immature. He doesn't have everything yet until the date set by the father. And when that date is set by the father, he fully has it. Okay? Keep that in your mind. Now, go down and look at verses 4 and 5. And remember verse 2 where he says the date set by his father. And he goes on in verse 2 to say this. But when the fullness of time has come, that's a reference to God's wondrous providence and the, and the perfect time in God's plan, God's decree. The fullness of time had come. God, and this is a reference to God the Father. Now you pull back into verse 2, remember what he says, the date set by the Father and then down here in verse 4, he talks about when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth his son, born of a woman, which means he was man, incarnate in the flesh, born under law. And what does that mean? He was born under the Mosaic law. You know, one of the ideas that I want you to make sure you get your hands around and understand is this whole notion of Jesus being our substitute. You, you get this idea. And one of the ways we, we think about it, and we learn this, even in, the, and I, I kind of grew up in fundamentalist churches. Here's what I heard. Jesus was our substitute. He was my substitute on the cross. That is true. He died for my sins on Calvary's cross. But one of the things we at times miss, and this is what leads us towards legalism, is we miss that he was our substitute under the law. Okay? So that Jesus was born of a woman, man, under the Mosaic law, he took our place before the law. He took our place on the cross. Are you following me? Okay. He took our place so that we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law of God. That's his act of obedience. And Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. That's his passive obedience on the cross. Both of those things matter to your understanding, your right understanding of the gospel. If you do not get that he did all of it, he did life and he did death for us. If you don't get all of it, you're not going to rightly understand the gospel. Okay, so he did all of that for us. He became our substitute in every possible way. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, to redeem, to purchase those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, what he's saying, what he's getting at through this whole understanding of the, the Roman inheritance law and then going on to talk about what Jesus did, is what he's saying is that Jesus has done everything for us. He's saying we right now have all of the privileges, all of the benefits of the law, and we don't have to add anything to Jesus to have it. That's the point. Now, here's what was going on. The Judaizers, let me get at it like this. I'm going to use my fingers again, all right? So the whole Bible is a story, and it's this wonderful redemptive story, right? So it's the, it's the story of God's redemption of mankind, and really of all creation. And so you can go all the way back to the garden, and you go all the way to, to the end, and say we're going from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the things, and many of you, if not most of you know this, 
The Bible story is progressive, and so it, it, it expands. We get more and more and more and more, and we just get more and more grace. And so when Jesus comes, he's spoken of as being full of grace and truth, right? Doesn't mean there wasn't grace before, but it just keeps growing, right? Okay, so we go from beginning to the end, acorn to oak tree, okay? It's the way to look at it, okay? As it moves along, there are a lot of significant things, but not, there's not anything in this redemptive story more significant than the name Jesus. There's not one thing more significant than his first and second coming. In fact, his first and second coming, it, it, it radically fulfills and changes everything. So a couple of weeks ago, I said to you, here's the way the Judaizers viewed Jesus. But the Judaizers thought, it wasn't that they were saying, don't believe in Jesus. And it wasn't they weren't, that they were saying that, that Jesus isn't the Messiah or that Jesus isn't Christ. They weren't saying any of those things. But here's how they viewed Jesus. Here's an image for you. The image would be if you take a pebble, you remember this, and you throw it into a pond. And if you take a pebble and throw it into a pond, what does it do? It moves water. You get the concentric circles. And then after you get the concentric circles, it sort of comes back and settles again. Okay? So the Judaizers were basically saying, Jesus, is he important? Yes. Do you have to believe in Jesus? Yes. But they were also saying all those things prior to Jesus, all that law keeping, all of that stuff, you still had to do that. Okay? Here's a, here's a way that Paul, I believe, understood Jesus coming. It wasn't a pebble in a pond. It was a boulder in a pond. Right? So it goes, whoosh, and the water moves. And it doesn't come back exactly the same way. And the reason it doesn't come back the same way is because the boulder is so big, it pushes water up on the banks, right? And so there's a radical thing that has happened in Jesus. Now, here's the point. I'll give you another phrase, all right? Here was the error of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, these false teachers, have made, I'm going to say this slowly so you get it, they had made what I will call a redemptive historical error. Are you following me? All right, here's what I mean. Flow of the Bible. Genesis, Revelation, Jesus, Jesus, okay? All right. What we learn from Jesus, remember the story of Jesus on the Emmaus Road. What did he do? He talked to his disciples and he said what? All of the law and the prophets point to whom? To, to, to him, right? You remember what, what Corinthians says where he ta- where it talks about all the promises finding their fulfillment in whom? Jesus, if you, if you doubt me on this, go read the book of Revelation. All of it finds its, it, not Revelation, Hebrews. All of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So here is, here's the Judaizers. Beginning, Jesus. What they're doing, we live between first coming, second coming of Jesus. What they're doing is they're looking to Jesus, but then they're jumping back in the Old Testament. They're jumping back here almost as if Jesus hasn't fulfilled all of this. Almost as if we, haven't, we don't understand all of this through the movement and the work of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is that we, yeah, at, at one time there, that was the whole movement. You were a child. You had all these things. You had all these guardians. But now that Jesus has come, you have everything. You have all rights, all inheritance. You are loved by God, and it's not by your works, and it's not by your effort, and it's not by the law. It's by Jesus Christ alone. All right, so let's say all of that is totally confusing to you. Let me give you an easier story. Okay. My son Matthew, when he was a little boy, 
I used to love all my kids. I used to love to give all my kids Christmas gifts. I used to love to give them, I used to love giving them gifts and food and everything just to watch them respond to it, right? And I got Matthew this wonderful gift. I mean, it was like, it was just the perfect gift that I probably wanted when I was a little boy, right? Wrapped it up, had it under the tree. On the morning, and Matthew was big enough to know what he was doing, so he comes out, he opens up the gift, and he looks at it, and I'm so excited, I'm ready to take a picture, can't wait till he pulls it out. He pulls out the gift and lays it down and plays with the box. Okay. He plays with the box and not the gift. He hangs around the box and not the gift. Okay, here's a way for you to visualize what Paul's doing. He's saying, guys, you got the gift. Don't go back to the box. See? You got the gift. You have Jesus. Now, notice what this brings us, because that's not, the, that's not all the story. I mean, it's just like, this is great. I mean, I want you to get sonship today. I want you to get daughtership today. So he moves on. He talks about us being redeemed, receiving adoption as sons. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says, and because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is Trinitarian. This is a trinity all over this. God the Father sent the son, Jesus. God the Father sent the spirit of the son, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the trinity. That he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's language of closeness and intimacy and relationship and daddy. He's our daddy. It's, it's fellowship. It's, it's God's love and acceptance. That's the fullness of all of it. We have that now. So you're no longer a slave. And if a son, then an heir through God. Not an heir through circumcision. Not an heir through the law but an heir through God. And this, is, this changes everything. You know, one, one of the, the things that we hear at times is concerns, you know, when, when someone presses in on the gospel and we, we, we make it clear, like I'm trying to do with you, that it's all God and not us, is that we do struggle with, okay, if you're saying that, Mike, then what, what about a life of holiness? What about living to honor God? And, and what about that, all of that stuff? And here's what I, I want you to understand. If you are getting the gospel, and if you're getting sonship and daughtership, if you're getting the relationship, if you're getting the spirit, here's the very words that Paul uses. The spirit of God comes into our hearts. He's not talking about this, this, this part, this organ in my body, this beep, this beating. He's talking about the very inner part of us. So what he's saying is the very part of us, God has done something. So God has redeemed us. God is making us new. God has given us the spirit. God is at work in us. So for the first time, I'm telling you, we can live to honor God. And I don't care how much your self-empowered law-doing is. You're not honoring God unless the Spirit is at work in you. And we have that through Christ and through Christ alone. That he's at work in us. Now, let's move on. So you have sonship. You have daughtership. You have power to live. So what he's saying is, why would any of us want to go back to slavery, to the bondage of self, 
So there's this novelty t-shirt company, and they have this, it's, it's called No U-Turn, and they have this, you know, what a U-Turn, No U-Turn sign is when you were driving on the highway, and they have this U-Turn, and then underneath it, and they do a lot of different things, but one of them is on growing older. There's no U-Turn on that. That's really true. <laughs> it's no U-Turn. I mean, as much as we wish, you know, can't go back, can't go back uh, to, the, to the teens or, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. We wish, right? Can't go back. Wish we could. All right, this is kind of silly, but it'll make my point. Here's what Paul is saying. So there's no U-turn on, on growing old. That's the T-shirt. Here's another one. He wants us to know that there's no U-turn on Jesus. We can't go back in redemptive history. That's what he's saying. Jesus is that significant. He's that important. That we can't go back and act like he didn't come. That we can't go back and act like what he's done, what he's accomplished, doesn't mean what he's done and what he's accomplished we can't go back. But that's exactly what the Judaizers are convincing. They're, they're convincing the Galatians to do this. And I think the same thing can happen to us. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I think it can happen is because all of us, you know, John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, said this, that all of us, our hearts are idol-making factories. In other words, what rebellion is, I mean, think about it. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is turning away from God, right? So sin isn't just simply bad stuff we do. That's a manifestation of our rebellion. Sin is turning from God. And if we turn from God, and if we're leaning on ourselves, if we're resting in ourselves, then we are going to exalt something. We're going to make something an idol. And I'll tell you what we do religiously is usually we make it ourselves. We make it what we can do and what we can accomplish and what we can bring about. So Paul then says some things here, and this is verses 8 and 9, that I think are just radical and, and unbelievable when you understand it. So in verse 8, he says, Formerly when you did not know God, and these they didn't, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so the, the Galatians were Gentile Christians. They weren't a part of the covenant people of God. They had no understanding of who the true God was. They were pagans, they were idolaters. That's what he's saying. Then in verse 9, he goes on to say this. But now that you have come to know God, and I'm, I want you to know something. Your Reformed Presbyterian preacher loves the rest of this one. Or rather, be known by God. Ooh, it's, that's good stuff. You know what that means. He knows you first, he loves you first. You notice how he pushes on, we know God, but notice how he pushes on it. Rather, it's what? It's we're known by God. He calls us. He chooses us. He elects us. But then he asks this question. How can you, and they give a little of the oomph of what he's saying. How in the world, how in the world can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, one of the things that I said a minute ago is I said this is an extraordinary thing that Paul is saying. Now, why is that extraordinary? Why is it extraordinary? Well, here's why it's so extraordinary. The Galatians were Gentiles, which means that the Galatians were pagans, right? They believed in paganism. Paul is saying they're turning back and the way he writes this, because they were, they were pagans, and he says you're turning back to the elementary principles you had before, it's almost like what he is saying is they're turning back to paganism. Are they? Did the Judaizers come into Galatia and say, hey guys, become pagans. 
Did the Judaizers come into Galatia and say, hey guys, don't believe in Jesus? You know what they said? If I were to add a religion to it, they weren't saying take on the religion of paganism. You know what they were saying? If there's a religion, it was take on Judaism. That's what they were saying. Now, here's the thing. Paul, the former Jewish rabbi, with nothing but mad. I do not want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Do not misunderstand this. Paul is not denying the value, significance, importance of anything in the Old Testament. Torah was important to Paul. Law was important to Paul. Temple was important to Paul. Prophets were important to Paul. The covenants were important to Paul. But what Paul is saying is this. Since Jesus Christ has come and all that Jesus has done, if you turn back to religion, and it doesn't matter what that religion is. That religion could be Judaism or whatever. If you turn back to religion, what you are doing is the same exact thing as turning to paganism because what you are doing is idolatry. You are turning to self. And that's what they were doing. Notice the text as it moves on. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. They were taking on not only circumcision, they were taking on the high holy days, they were taking on the feast days of, of Judea, they were taking all of these things on. Why would they take it on? Because they had these days in paganism. They had holy days in paganism, they weren't the same. They had emperor worship in paganism, it wasn't the same. They worshiped only special days all the time as pagans. What was driving this? It was that part of us that goes, as something clicks in us, like, ooh, I, I got to do something. I got to add something. It's that idolatrous heart in all of us. And so Paul makes a statement, and it's amazing in verse 11 where he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So this week, I went to a conference with my staff, and it was a good conference. It was a global leadership summit. It was put on by, by um, Willow Creek Church, which is the mega church in, in uh, Illinois, and Baptist Hospital. And, and it was for every, I mean, it was all simultaneously cast all over the world, and, and they had one here in Miami, and it was, it was really helpful. It really was. And um, Bill Hybels, who's the pastor, and I don't know what you think about Bill Hybels. That's not my point, okay? So don't go like, all right, I thought I liked this guy up to this point, and now I don't like him anymore. Don't, don't do that, all right? Bill Hybels did the opening address, and... Uh, and he did something in that address. It was on leadership. But that was so good that I leaned over. I was there with Ray and Dina and everybody. And I was like, I want to use that on Sunday because it was so good. So Ray, Ray put it in an illustration for me. Here's what he said. And this is right. That, that whenever he is talking to someone who is a non-Christian, and he, he wants them to understand the difference between, between religion and gospel, Christianity, okay? That here's what he does. Do done. That religion is do. It's just the constant ways that we do, do, do. Christianity, biblical Christianity is done. It's done. That's what Paul's point is. God the Father sent God the Son. God the Father sent the Spirit of the Son. Now, we are part of that there's a, there's a life empowered by the Spirit, a transformation of values and orientations. But guys, the work belongs to God alone. And so let me push this a little bit. And I'm going to say it this way so that you get my point. And I don't want to offend you. If you get offended by this and you come and tell me, I'll, I'll clear it up at the end of the service for you. Okay. It doesn't matter if your religion is 
there's paganism. Or your religion is Judaism. Or your religion is Islam. Or your religion is Buddhism. Or you are of the religion of you, whatever it is. Or your religion is, now hear me, Christianity. You are not saved by your religion. You are not saved by Christianity. You are saved by the work of God alone through Jesus Christ alone. And that's our salvation. And that's our hope. Don't go back to the enslavement of yourself. So there's this last thing that Paul does. And this is sort of him picturing this in in his personal relationship. So all the rest of the passage is about his interactions with the Galatians, his relationship with them, coming into Galatia. And I'm only going to read part of it for the sake of time. But if you notice verse 13 through verse 15, what he says. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, so whatever that was, whatever his ailment was, it was bad. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't, he couldn't hide it. It was so, so awful that they saw it and it was a trial for them. He goes on to say, you did not scorn or despise me. And that's an important thing of understanding this. Which, what it's basically saying is that whatever this was that Paul, Paul was dealing with, it was so awful, so bad. Let me add the word, so disgusting to people that there would have been people, if they saw it, most people probably would have scorned and despised him oh, as a result of whatever this was that he had. Okay? But he comes to Galatia. With that. And he goes on to say, but you received me as an angel of God. It could be me, just messenger. But it's the next words that really stand out. As Christ Jesus. The very embodiment of the gospel. Now, I want, you to, I want you to get your minds around this a little bit because we live in a church world today that is so opposite of that. I mean, we, we live in a church world where we think that in order to, to somehow get people to, to whatever, I mean, to grow our churches and build our buildings and do all this stuff, then the preacher has to be super cool and super slick and the right glasses and the right pants and the right whatever, and you got to have all the bells and the whistles and the smoke and the la-la-la-la-la-la-la. And all of it, all of it, it's this attempt to somehow do something that only God himself can do. And so here's Paul. And he goes into Galatia. And any one of us would have probably gone, yuck. But they received him like Jesus because God was so powerfully at work. So here's his point. Galatians, if it didn't begin with the flesh, your power, why do you think it's going to continue that way? It never began that way. Paul, weak, broken, miserable vessel, goes with the power of God through the gospel and people get saved.
believe that? Last thing. Here's your, here's your test, verse 15. Here's what he says to them. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. What has happened to your blessedness? Paul tells us that in, in, in another place that we're called to examine ourselves. And here's a way of doing this. Forgetting our sonship... Forgetting our gospel, there's a, there's a blessedness there. Let me, let me put some things out there in front of us that are indicators of it. There's, the blessedness is, is, is joy and peace and life and hope and rest and power and victory and service and mercy and grace and kindness and compassion and a longing for the broken and a willingness to be broken and a desire to serve the way that they had reached out and embraced Paul and served Paul, it was, the, it was the power of the gospel. It was the blessedness of hope. It was the joy of the gospel. And some of us are sitting here today and we, we got it. And some of us are sitting here today and we don't. And we don't. If we don't. Because there's way too much of you. There's just not enough of him. He's right here right now. Saying, my son, my daughter, will you just come? So I had this great vacation. I didn't share this in the first service, but um, I love being your pastor. But it's hard being your pastor. <laughs> and I was like, I was coming to the end of my, my not, not that I was going to quit. I think I was going to die. I wasn't going to quit. <laughs> and I made some, like, I was like, wow. I'm having headaches all the time. My eye was, like, terribly messed up. And I know, I know what was going on. And it, it just hit me. That's why this vacation was so, this last one was so, I just stayed home. I didn't go anywhere. But it was so wonderful because it just finally hit me. God, I'm trying to do this myself. I'm trying to figure out how to make this place work. I'm trying to deal with, my, with all of this stuff. And I just can't. But he can't. And he can for you. And that's just finding that place of resting in him. Oh, son and daughter of God. And if you're here today and you don't know him, and I am not, I promise you, I'm not in any way trying to be rude when I say this, and I'll just be real quick on it. If you don't know Jesus, you are still in bondage. You are a slave to yourself, to your sin, and to this world. And the only way for you to be set free is coming to the Son who will make you a son and daughter of God. Let's bow our heads together in prayer.
Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, gathered in this room are people, um, probably many who are a lot like me, struggling to do this all by self and not finding that place of peace and hope and rest in you. There are others in this room, Lord, who, who walked in this place feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders. Knowing that we are not able to lift that weight off of ourselves. But there is one who can, and that's Jesus. And for that man, for that woman, for that boy or girl, Lord, if this is the day that they would turn to you and pray, oh Lord, would you forgive me? Would you, for, would you receive me and would you make me your own? God is faithful to do that. Not because you've cleaned yourself up, not because you lifted the weight of sin off. He will do all of that for us. Lord, for all of us who know him that haven't been living as the sons and daughters that we are, help us today to trust you and to be restored. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.